Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and the players who run it all. Teddy Schleifer here. It is Friday, March 25th. And this is the second of a two-part episode with Julia Yaffe. Yesterday, we talked with Julia about a young dissident who is using Instagram and Telegram to communicate with the Russian people. So check your favorite podcast app for yesterday's episode, or maybe listen to that after you're done with this one. Today, we're gonna keep on talking with Julia Yaffe on this episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. We're back now on the Powers That Be Daily with Julia Yaffe, um, who has been kind of telling us a story about just one mother-son relationship. And, you know, sometimes it's nice to kind of narrow in in this kind of big, hairy conflict involving kind of anonymous figures, it feels like often, and, you know, anonymous cities that people, most folks haven't heard of. I think being able to relate to just one mom and one son tells the story rather neatly. That's got me thinking a little bit about just sort of the generational divide in Russia and in Ukraine, but specifically, you know, more in Russia. I'm, you know, there's been some focus paid about how it's very difficult to know what Russians really think um, about what's going on here. You know, it's not exist. It's not as if there's a you know a pupil that is doing a statistical sample of Russians on the street. But just anecdotally, or from your experience of talking with experts who, who might have some insight into how regular folks feel. Tell me about just the generational divide in Russia. I mean, obviously there are people who were born before 1990, maybe well before 1990, who have vivid experiences living under a very different nation state. And then there are folks closer to my age who were you know, born and might not know anything else. Just tell me about how the generational differences kind of play out in Russian public opinion right now. Because I imagine it's it's different from the United States, where was 1990 in the U.S. really that different from 2020? Not in the way that it's so in Russia. So talk to me about how people of different ages are processing this war differently. Yeah, so this was exactly the right question and exactly the right framing of it. Early in the war, people kept asking me, what do Russians think about this? Do they support this war? And I was right. like, I have no idea. So I called... 
a sociologist at the Levada Center, which is an independent polling organization, the oldest and probably most renowned in Russia, and did an interview with him, which you can find on Puck.News. But he was saying is that the divide is, is generational, like you said, and it's not just people who were born before and after 1991, which is the year the Soviet Union collapsed. It's somewhere around like folks my age and younger and folks my age and older. So, and I see this anecdotally in my life and the Russians I know. So I was born in 1982 and I remember some parts of the Soviet Union. You know, I did first grade in the Soviet Union and then my my family left. I never had to get a job in the Soviet Union. I never had to deal mm-hmm. with, really had to deal with the educational system. I never got in trouble for, you know, speaking out. I didn't pass around Samizdat, though my parents and grandparents did, which is a very risky thing to do. And it's weirdly the people who are older. Uh-huh. So like people my age and younger are used to the idea of Ukraine being a separate country. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Right. For older folks... You yeah. know, the concept that Ukraine was ever been independent. I mean, this just shows my lack of, of gray beards. But the idea that it was independent to begin with is a kind of a, a paradigm shift. I mean, right. it's crazy to me, but like people who are older, it would be like if tomorrow the U.S. split up and you and I thought of ourselves as American and then like the West Coast becomes its own thing and Texas becomes its own country and the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic become its own country and 30 years from now, your kids are going to be like, right, I'm going to the country of Texas for vacation. And you'd be like, oh, right, 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 right. Sorry, it's a separate right, country, right, right. right? You're not used to it. And I remember, I mean, this was over a decade ago. And like my parents, they hated the Soviet Union so much that they left thinking, because they never thought the Soviet Union would collapse, but thinking they would never see their parents or friends ever again. Mm. But they were willing to do it because they hated the Soviet Union so much. So they're not, these are not pro-Soviet folks. In 2011, so 21 years after the Soviet collapse, I went with a friend to Georgia, which used to be part of the Soviet Union and has been a separate country since 1991. And my mother, being a Jewish mother, was like, give me your phone number. I want to call and check in on you eight times a day. And I gave her the Georgian phone number. And after two days, I get these frantic emails from her like, what happened? I can't reach you. Your phone number doesn't work. And we went back and forth like, oh, no, you have the right number. Then she realized she was dialing the country code for Russia to reach Georgia. Huh. Because in her head, right, it was like, but again, not somebody who likes the Soviet Union. So it's interesting. On one hand, Folks of that generation and older, they remember the Soviet Union, but a lot of them, weirdly, having experienced it, feel nostalgia for it, in part because that's when they were young. That's when their joints didn't hurt. That's when the sun shined more brightly. And they've forgotten all the things like how you couldn't get toilet paper, how you couldn't get food. It's the the good old days. You just remember the, uh, the joys of your younger years and politics be damned. Well, it's not even politics. It was like that you didn't have clothes. It's like I hear my mom's memories of the Soviet Union or my dad's memories. And they're, yeah, they they were young and it was great. But there's a lot of bitterness there. Like my mom and her mom 
had one blouse, one going out blouse that they had to share. So like they could never go out on the same night because there were just no clothes and there were no, there was no food. And my mom left 30 some years ago. There are people who have stayed behind, who are watching TV, who have been told, you know, we used to be something, we used to be somebody, we were a great power we were a great empire and we want to get, and we were taken seriously and we were one of the two power players and we kind of set the agenda for world events and we could fuck America up anytime we wanted to. And there's still about like half of Russians under 35 support the war or I think like 40% support the war. But among older Russians, it's like close to 70. Even that is, you have to put like a massive asterisk next to both of those numbers. Yeah, this is not, uh, the sampling here is tough. It's very tough. I mean, look look at the problems we have with polling in the U.S., right? And how because of the kind of shift to cell phones and who has landlines and who doesn't and who picks up the phone. Uh, In in Russia, it's funny, I was talking to the friend who's dating Jean-Michel about this over the weekend. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about how In Russia, they call landlines also. I don't know who among my friends who are in their mid to late 30s, they don't even have landlines. Yeah, sure. But olds do, right? Olds do. And they call during the day. So like these are the olds who don't work. So like I know a bunch of Russian olds who hate Putin and hate the war, but they're off at work. One day. We got to send like Nate Silver over there to like run a model of, of uh, in, in, in another field he knows very little about, but, yeah. but we'll pretend to know an enormous amount about. That'll be the new 538 index of uh, olds in Moscow. Yeah. So this is who they call, right? And because I mean, here's the other thing is like, it's not just that they're olds in America, right? These are, again, people who grew up and came of age in the Soviet Union, where everybody on the outside of the Soviet Union until 1991 was convinced that, Mm. like, it would never fall apart and that people were pretty supportive, pretty passively supportive of of the Soviet regime. And then it just collapsed and nobody came and tried to put it back together. But these are people, when you call them and you're like, hi, I'm from the Institute of such and such, right? Some official sounding name. Like, do you like, do you like Vladimir Putin? Yeah, that's got to be, I mean, that's got to be suspicious, right? I mean, right? Uh, you know, because like what else, like what is the, what is the, uh, the cost benefit here? What is the benefit of giving, registering your, uh, you know, exactly correct opinion? Right. And these are people of a certain age who, let's say like, this is pretty much everybody there. Let's say grandmother's brother disappeared in 1937 and was like ratted out for telling a joke about Stalin and like was arrested at five in the morning and never came back. So now some stranger from an official sounding body is calling you and asking what you think about Vladimir Putin. You're like, yeah, great. Sure. Yeah, I support him. Sure. Yeah. Because that used to be an issue of life and death. Maybe for this generation, it no longer is. But the generation that raised them taught them, you better shut up. Keeping your mouth shut is a way to save your own life. And then the other issue that I think was uh, that I think is really interesting. And this is something that the sociologist Denise told me a few years ago when we met in Moscow was that they first encountered this issue of kind of self-selecting in these polls after 2014, after Russia annexed Crimea. And there was this massive rallying around the flag effect. Mm. And that moment in Russia was very 
close to like the 2016 election in the U.S. That's when the fractures in families and friendships started forming. There were people who like you suddenly discover that somebody you know and like supports Trump and you're like, uh, I don't I don't know if we can do this anymore. Right. And so it became such a toxic, divisive issue there that when they started calling, even if they didn't call people who were older, even at like even setting aside the older the kind of Soviet fear dynamic, there was so much jingoism in that moment and so much pressure from the media, from the government to support the annexation of Crimea, that when they called people to ask, you know, do you support Vladimir Putin? Do you support the annexation of Crimea? People who didn't agree would bow out of the polls. They'd be like, oh, sorry, you know, this isn't a good time. I don't really want to participate. But the people who did agree were enthusiastic guesses. Like they could only get benefits from vocally supporting the agenda. So they would get this like a skewing of the pool because mm. people would kind of wriggle out of it if they didn't support it because it was like, I don't, I don't want to touch this. This sounds like, you know, you have all the issues of polling plus a sprinkle of authoritarianism. And trauma from like totalitarianism, right? Like this is a country where 20 million people went through the gulag. Right. So that means every family was touched by it which is why so many of Putin's measures are so effective. Like he doesn't have to jail tens of thousands and millions of people the way Stalin did because he can just jail a few hundred people or even a few dozen people and people immediately, it triggers all the historical memory, all the historical trauma that's in every single family and everyone immediately gets the point. Julia, let's take a quick break and we'll be back with a little bit more for you in a sec. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code POWERS. 
This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleepsleep.me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Julia, can I just ask you one kind of final question here about, I think the big question, honestly, that everyone's feeling is just like, where does this end? You know, it's, it's very easy to get swept up uh, in kind of the cable news. You know, this is what happened today in, in Maripol, or here's what Putin or Zelensky said on Thursday or on Friday. But taking a week to week or, or, or to a month to month kind of view of history, the big question is very simple. Is this what happens next? And and kind of what's what's the end game here? That's what I'm thinking as someone who's not an expert. And I feel sometimes overwhelmed with what's happening and, you know, this battle, you know, this new kind of policy from the West. But the big story feels still kind of hazy. And maybe that's just, you know, it's an overwhelming situation and viewers and listeners got to suck it up. But at a macro level, like, can you just tell me where you think will be in six months? Yeah, I mean, that's the question I keep asking myself. And I... Like, that feels like the question. Yeah, yeah it is the question. And I don't know that anybody knows. Mm-hmm. I think that's the next piece I'm going to do is talking to people about this, especially people in Russia who were always the people that I would go to to ask, like, what's happening in the Kremlin right now? And what do you think is informing Putin's thinking? Back when there was more insight into that question. I think that's what's so scary about this is that nobody knows how this ends. And I don't even think before the invasion, before Russia invaded Ukraine, there was one person in the world who knew what would happen. And that was Vladimir Putin. And whenever I talked to my sources in the White House or in European governments, they would say, we think it's more likely than not that he'll invade, but he might still not. This is only Putin's decision. He's the only one who can and will make this decision. But now I don't even think that Vladimir Putin is in control of this, which is the scary thing about war is once it starts, it takes on a momentum of its own and kind of runs away from the people who started it. And I worry about many things. I worry that Putin is going to use chemical weapons. In Ukraine, I worry that he's going to use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. I don't know if they can negotiate anything because Putin's demands are so extreme that I don't know that he will take anything less. But I also think he's so pissed off the Ukrainians that I don't know that they'll take much of anything. I made the mistake before the before the war of like, I would couch it in like, oh, I don't know, 70, 30, 50, 50 uh, about the invasion which kind of violated my own cardinal rule about writing about Russia, which you never, ever make predictions. <laughs> mm. So I don't know if there will, will this still be a war and a meat grinder in six months or will it be over? I don't know. You could see a plausible scenario in which Putin pulls back where the casualties and the international response are both more destructive to, to the Kremlin than he anticipated and that in two weeks he packs up and goes home, that's like a plausible outcome? Not necessarily. Um, okay, yeah. That was a pregnant pause. No, I'm just thinking about it. There's just so many different scenarios how this could go, and I don't 
but a a plausible scenario. I guess. I guess. I guess. Maybe. Like, to, 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 I you know, think maybe they could yeah. negotiate something where Russia gets a bunch of a bunch of land and they mm. stop. But then it's like. Do we act like this didn't happen? Who pays to rebuild Ukraine? Do the sanctions get unraveled or lifted? Right. Actually, I don't know if anybody will want to lift sanctions after this, right? And then if they're not lifted, then Russia will still be aggressive. Right. And there's no sort of off-ramp to getting out of this, right? If they feel like, well, we're, you know, sunk costs, we've already pissed off the West. That's right. Well, that's where they are now. And they're demanding lifting of sanctions. But even if the sanctions are lifted tomorrow and the war ends tomorrow, um, I'm sure there are a lot of Western companies who are like, I don't know. That was pretty crazy. I don't know that I want to go back there because that seems like like a lot of companies were in Russia because it was a high risk environment, but it was a risk that was understandable and palatable to them. Right, right. Now it feels like there's no going back to February 2022 at this point. That's right. And like now that you have Dmitry Medvedev talking about how we got to invade Poland next, I have a feeling that even if this all stops tomorrow and the EU and the US lift sanctions, I think the damage to Russia's economy will be so vast and so few companies will want to go back. Having seen this side of Russia, it will take decades to rebuild. And I think kind of there will always be a risk that Russia will do this kind of thing again. Um, does Putin get ousted? And even if he does get ousted, who's his successor? And does his successor carry on this policy? I don't know. It's just um, I just keep thinking about other wars in history. And a month in, all the predictions made this early on about those wars were all wrong in the end. Mm. I understand the temptation I have it myself to be like, okay, no, but seriously, where does this go? Julia, we don't expect you to have every, <laughs> every, have every answer, you. every answer, but um, we appreciate the questions you're asking. So thanks for coming by and we'll see you again. Or Peter will see you again. I'm sure before you even have the answers, um, <laughs> Peter will be back asking more questions. So thanks for coming by. Thank you so much, Teddy. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck Now Daily. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for all their editorial and production help. If you like what you hear, please share us with a friend. It really helps us deliver all the goods we have here at Puck. You can follow all of our great reporting at puck.news, where you can sign up to subscribe. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I am Teddy Schleifer, and Peter Hamby is back at the mic next week. Thanks. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 